York Times report alleging that the president has not paid any income taxes in 10 of the past 15 years. Paid just $750 in taxes in 2016. It's totally fake news. Actually, I paid tax. The report comes just weeks before the election. Which one of the most important stories of the past five years? Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're watching The Listening Post, working from home. Here are some of the media stories we're covering this week. We're taking an extended look at the U.S. presidential election, where investigative journalism has done a number on President Trump. According to The New York Times, the emperor has no clothes and pays very little in taxes. Biden showed America you're a loser. Republicans and the attack ads they're putting out that target their own candidate. It's so 2020. And life accordion to Trump's. I will never let it happen. A medley of melodious sound bites. Donald Trump has survived one bombshell news report after another. Leaks, revelations, and scandals that would have sunk any other president. Last week, the New York Times dropped a story that may prove to be the last straw. Two days before the first televised debate of this year's presidential campaign, the Times revealed it had acquired years' worth of Trump's tax returns, which the president had tried to hide from public view. The returns show a history of tax avoidance and have led Times reporters to other stories that collectively undermine the image Trump has crafted, primarily through the media, of a successful business mogul. And because of huge debts that will soon come due, the documents show the U.S. president could even be vulnerable to blackmail. Donald Trump's denials and his unhinged chaotic performance at this week's debate did nothing to suggest that this story is going away anytime soon. Our starting point this week is the website of the New York Times. This was a news story, an old-school blockbuster that was six years in the making. That's how long American journalists have been chasing Donald Trump's tax returns and the stories those documents would reveal. The New York Times was as meticulous in timing the story's release as it was in its preparation, dropping it on a slow news Sunday, just 48 hours before the first TV debate of the 2020 presidential election campaign. You were a senator. And You're the, the worst way, you president vice... America has ever had. Hey, hey, Come Joe, on. Let me, let me just tell you, Joe. I've this is probably the biggest political story of the year, the and you'll, you'll see some people speculating that this, of course, is why Donald Trump gave such an unhinged performance. I can't imagine what a transcription of this debate would look like. Would you who shut is up, your, man? Listen, who is your... It would just be crosstalk. In China ate your lunch, Joe. No. It's hard to get any word in with this clown. Crosstalk. Mr. President, a great... single one of them lost This is not about crosstalk. Let's please continue on. In a debate that lasted 90 minutes, just three minutes were spent on Donald Trump's taxes, as laid bare by the New York Times. The Times reporting team could have led with the fact that the president's core businesses, such as his hotels and golf courses, lose millions, if not tens of millions of dollars year after year. That Trump is being investigated over a $72 million tax refund he claimed, and that losing that case could cost him $100 million. That Trump also has hundreds of millions of dollars in loans that will come due in the next few years during a possible second term. 
But instead of starting with those big money angles, the Times chose to lead with two paragraphs focusing on a much smaller figure, $750, the amount, according to the paper, that Trump paid in federal income taxes in 2016 and 17. So beginning with that $750 number was very, very relatable, really strikes to the heart, not just of working people, um, who are groaning under the burden of all kinds of taxes. So this is Trump's base. They care about taxes. And that really is at the heart of journalism, isn't it? Telling stories to allow citizens to understand extremely complex things. The Times led with the 750 figure because that's what's going to grab people, because they figured that was going to be the one that cable news and the internet and Twitter would jump on, and they were right. It's by far and away not the most important part of the story. The most important part of the story are A, its national security implications for the United States, of Trump being in hock to who knows who, and B, the enormous amount of uh, potential criminal activity committed by the president. Wasn't crazy long, like it was really pretty readable for a story about taxes. And then there was immediately an analytics piece that said, you know, this, these are the takeaways, so you can really understand what it is. And that was really, really well done. And then the next day, they had another piece about it, the branding and how really Trump has only ever made money when he sold Trump, which I thought was smart. The Times' reporting contests and may have demolished the narrative that helped Donald Trump get to the White House in the first place. The one that presented him as a savvy New York businessman who just dabbled in reality TV on the side. I made it an old-fashioned way in real estate. And I made a lot of money doing everything I did. I made a lot of money with The Apprentice. I made a lot of money in real estate. I made a lot of money everything I did. I've had great success. The Times reports Trump's tax returns show that from 2004 to 2015, the period he fronted The Apprentice on NBC, the program was Trump's primary source of income and helped keep his other struggling businesses afloat. It's been great, and you know, it became the number one show on television. As the paper put it, Mr. Trump's genius, it turned out, wasn't running a company. It was making himself famous, Trump-scale famous, and monetizing that fame. But by 2011, the show's ratings were in decline, and Trump's earnings nosedived. He finally left The Apprentice in 2015, when he ran for president helped along the way by media execs of different stripes and backgrounds. Ladies and gentlemen. He basically lost the fortune his father gave him, regained it when Jeff Zucker, then of NBC News, hired him to be a fake reality host, and then lost it again. Jeff Zucker created his television show with Mark Burnett on NBC, and that's what saved him financially, according to the New York Times report. So he's lost as much money as, as anyone has ever heard of. There are two people responsible for the rise of Donald Trump. Mark Burnett, who is the guy who created The Apprentice, who convinced the world that Donald Trump was a brilliant businessman. And then there's Rupert Murdoch, who made Donald Trump president, right? And kept him from being removed when he was impeached and terrified all the Republicans and kept them in line. If you hadn't had those two people, there would be no Donald Trump. And his pitch, particularly four years ago, is that he was going to use the skills 
and ingenuity he had learned on the streets of New York to change the country. What we see now is that he has no, no skills. That is something that he's been able to obscure by keeping these tax returns hidden, and now that's out in the open for the first time. But many Trump voters who have seen this president repeatedly play the fake news card. Totally fake news. No, actually I paid tax. But... Simply won't buy what the New York Times is selling. The media bubble they inhabit features the likes of Fox News, One American News, and Newsmax, where the pushback on this story has been strangely muted. Even those outlets, with their legions of Trump-backing pundits, can see when investigative reporters have got the goods. What's extraordinary about the New York Times story is it actually goes back to a really kind of old-school journalism that is more and more remarkable in a day and age when the line between punditry and journalism has collapsed. We see this as extreme on something like Fox News, but it's also true of MSNBC. It's also true of CNN that news has become a form of entertainment that really dovetails with Trump's reconfiguration of the presidency as a form of entertainment. I love this guy right here. And so by telling a gripping story about presidential corruption in a way people can understand that is real reporting, it's not entertainment. Investigative journalism is very expensive and it doesn't pay the bills. And if journalism is looked at purely as a profitable um, business, then you would get rid of investigative journalism. The glory of American journalism has been upheld by investigative journalism with regard to the president. And the shame of it has been with the White House press. The people who just retweet the tweets and talk about the lies without pointing out that they're lies and just treat the story as if it's a Broadway show, those are the people who are normalizing Trump and devaluing truth itself. I feel like the White House press corps is an impossible situation, right? It comes back to this idea, like, how does a free press exist in an autocracy, right? These are people who went to Columbia Journalism School. They're used to interviewing normal members of normal administrations, right? Don't ask me. Ask China that question, okay? When you ask so I don't know that it's fair to say they weren't able to adapt quickly enough. I don't know how you adapt so quickly to something like that, right? It's like from going from cricket to pro wrestling. Whatever the game is these days, and whether or not this story makes a difference with the president's supporters, even they would have to admit this about the New York Times' coverage of his tax returns. For fake news, it's pretty good. We're stepping away from the U.S. media story briefly with Johanna Hoos to look at the flare-up in Nagorno-Karabakh, an area that Armenia and Azerbaijan have been contesting for decades. Joe, let's start with some of the on-the-ground realities affecting the news coverage. What's the lay of the land there? Well, Richard, Nagorno-Karabakh is a very isolated mountainous region in the South Caucasus, which technically lies within Azerbaijan, but has been run by ethnic Armenians who are the majority there and who are backed by the Armenian government since 1994. Now, the remote location, in addition to the pandemic, makes that it is really difficult for news organizations to get crews on the ground, which is why journalists have come to rely on a lot of grainy drone footage or information uh, released by officials on both sides for their reporting. 
And what have they been able to conclude from that? Well, the narratives have been conflicting. Azerbaijan has long accused its neighbor of occupying the area, whereas Armenia says that Azerbaijan is trying to escalate the conflict by involving its regional ally, Turkey. Now, there is another key player here, Russia. Both uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia are former Soviet republics, and they know that Moscow's backing could make all the difference. Which is why this past week, Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan and Azerbaijani President Ilham Aliyev both dialed into Rossiya 1, which is Russia's state-owned channel, to pitch their case to the Russian people and the Kremlin. Сегодня с утра новость в том, что Азербайджан бомбил села уже непосредственно на территории Республики Армения. Presumably President Putin was tuning in. So that's the messaging for the outside world. But what about domestic audiences? How was this story being reported back home? Well, there have been a lot of theatrics on the airwaves. On Armenian state TV, anchors were very tearful. Whereas on the Azerbaijani side, newsreaders have been doing a lot of gloating. So if you are looking for a sober analysis of this crisis, it is probably better to look elsewhere. Okay, thanks, Joe. Back to the U.S. now, where the airwaves are growing thick with political ads. All kinds of them. Hype ads, hope ads, along with angry ads and scare ads. And not all of them have been approved by Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Among the third parties involved this year are two breakaway Republican groups blitzing online spaces with commercials aimed at defeating the Republican candidate, Donald Trump. The people behind the Lincoln Project and Republican voters against Trump have come to the conclusion, one that other Republicans still resist, that another four years of President Trump would be bad for America. And they've produced some ads aimed at swing voters that cut through the clutter and rack up the views. The Listening Post's Flo Phillips now on some not-so-friendly fire on the Republican side of this election and the impact it may have come November. There's a certain predictability, a tired formula to the American political ad. I know the history and the heart of this country. There's not a single thing we've ever failed to do when we've decided to do it together. The music, the casting, Stock storylines designed to tug at the heart. The reviews are in. In the 2020 presidential election, Trump versus Biden, some political ads have departed from the format. Here's what Trump's own people are saying about him. He's a f***ing moron. The ad producers have taken the rulebook and rewritten it. I've been a lifelong Republican. Lifelong Republican. At least I was until Donald Trump came into the picture. It's meant that some of the most talked-about anti-Trump, pro-Biden ads aren't affiliated with the Biden campaign or even the Democrats at all. Biden, 2020. Go America. So these two groups, the Lincoln Project and Republican Voters Against Trump, uh, they're 
been started by a group of people who are very seasoned um, and have gotten a lot of Republicans elected over the years. We will throw you and your failed cronies out of office. The choice, America or Trump. This is one of the most organized efforts of uh, people from one party trying to oust a president of their own party that we've really seen. These are ads that don't really pull very many punches. We know it's different now. You're tired. It's hard to keep your ratings up. Some of the messaging that we've seen is a lot more aggressive than what we've heard coming from the Biden campaign. You used to get applause. Now, get ready to hear. You're fired. They're really kind of pushing the boundary of mainstream political discourse, and I think that excites a lot of Democrats and liberals. The Lincoln Project burst onto the American political scene last December, on the eve of this election. Founded by a group of prominent Republicans and headquartered in Utah, the group has made its mission clear to, quote, defeat Trump and Trumpism. Not by trying to shake Trump supporters, but by persuading enough disillusioned Republicans and undecided voters to back Joe Biden. The Lincoln Project has a dedicated army of staff and volunteers churning out clickworthy ads, some of them quite ruthless, like this one on Donald Trump's health. We're not doctors, but we're not blind. It's time we talk about this. Trump is not well. And then there was this ad playing on Trump's paranoia about disloyal members in his own administration. Because you've got a loyalty problem. Loyalty problem. They're in your campaign. They're in your campaign. Your White House. Your White House. In Congress. In Congress. Even your own family. Your own family. But the ad that really caught the attention of Trump himself was this one. And under the leadership of Donald Trump, our country is weaker and sicker and poorer. If we have another four years like this, Will there even be an America? Trump went on a midnight Twitter rant attacking the Lincoln Project. We are not people who pull a punch. We are not people who, who get up in the morning and think, oh, well, I wonder if I'm going to offend so-and-so. We don't care. There is a policy objective to trolling Donald Trump. We're able to force his campaign to change their advertising, to change their message, to change their strategy. We're able to get in Donald Trump's head. And you're obsessed. You've talked about us every day. You've tweeted about us over and over. No matter what our disagreements with Joe Biden might be on policy matters, we view Donald Trump as a much greater risk factor for the future of this nation. They use a lot of scare tactics, dramatic music, frightening imagery, and they tell a story of Trump not just as someone they disagree with, but as someone who is so incompetent and so dangerous that there's almost a moral imperative to remove him from office. And the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero, close to zero, close to zero. It's a style that in some ways feels tailor-made to a conservative audience, because there have even been scientific studies that show that conservatives respond to fear and anxiety more than liberals. And these ads absolutely go for the gut punch. Tens of thousands dying from his incompetence. While Lincoln Project ads deal in scares and sarcasm, Republican voters against Trump takes a different approach, relying on voices from inside the Trump administration. I have been a Republican for my entire life. I am 
voting for Joe Biden because at this point, it's country over party. These are people with real conservative credentials, either longtime Republican voters or sometimes former administration officials. And if they're up there saying, look, I'm a conservative and I can't vote for Trump this time, it might give a conservative viewer permission to do the same thing, to say I might have voted for Trump because I was willing to set aside his rhetoric and go with the policies that I thought he was going to promote. This time, I'm doing something different. We've had enough voting for Donald Trump. has been a monumental mistake. I'll take anybody over him. I'm voting for Joe Biden. They're focused in on a very finite group of voters, and even changing a few of them could really have a transformative effect. You know, we saw in 2016, you, if you redistribute about 75,000 votes throughout a few states, and Hillary Clinton would have been president. The same thing could be true this time. So... The ambition of groups like this is not we need to change a million votes or five million votes. It's we need to change a few thousand here and there, and that may be enough. The ads from the Lincoln Project and Republican voters against Trump have racked up countless views online. And while the Biden campaign has spent upwards of $17 million a week on TV and digital ads, these Republican projects are being played out on TV for free. They are doing tougher ads against Trump than any Democratic group. Here is tonight's latest effort. There's a reason for this kind of media attention and success, and it has to do with the names behind these outfits. Republican Voters Against Trump's founding director is Bill Kristol, who worked for both the Reagan and George W. Bush administrations. The Lincoln Project is the brainchild of GOP insiders and spin doctors, including Steve Schmidt, who worked for the rabble-rousing vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin in 2008, and Rick Wilson, a 30-year campaign veteran. The eight co-founders have a combined 200 years helping elect Republicans. I think that what some of these figures are trying to accomplish is a kind of absolution. I think that there are deep roots uh, for what we're seeing in the Trump presidency uh, within Republican politics. And frankly, people who are involved in the Lincoln Project and involved in Republican voters against Trump bear some culpability for that. Take what happened in 2008, for instance. You had the rise of Sarah Palin, who really represented one of the first figures in this past decade to represent this kind of know-nothing populism. She's a pioneer of this kind of discourse. And one of the people most responsible for her rise is obviously Steve Schmidt, now one of the co-founders of the Lincoln Project. I think the Iraq War was a big predecessor for Trumpism. And one of the people who was a big supporter of the Iraq War is Bill Kristol, who is one of the lead figures in Republican voters against Trump. We're not here to rehash ideology. We're not here to rehash the past. We're not here to litigate whether or not the Iraq War was right, wrong, or indifferent, or whether or not we disagree or agree on any particular policy thing. Every minute they're wasting time litigating about what the Republican Party is or was or could have been, or what our role in any given part of it was. My question to them is, what the hell are you doing? Get to work. Go, let's go beat Donald Trump. With the campaign heading into the home stretch, the ad barrage will only intensify. Impetus Americanus. Notable for its exotic plumage, the Trump is typically a ruddy orange color, not... This unprecedented alliance that has Democrats and some Republicans working towards the same goal, churning out the ads, will likely prove fleeting. Because politics, as they say, makes strange bedfellows. Relationships don't last. 
But if Joe Biden wins the presidency... Impetus Americanus is considered endangered this November. This unlikely coalition may prove memorable. And finally, back to Donald Trump. We need to talk about his hands. Not the size issue, it's the way he uses them when he speaks. Body language specialists say that Trump's use of gestures is one part emphasis and one part distraction from the facts. Given the circus that is the Trump presidency, an Australian videographer named Hugh Parkinson thought it would be appropriate to take some of Trump's sound bites and then add a musical instrument to the mix to make the point that viewers can see that they too are being played. With apologies for the title, Life Accordion to Trump, we'll see you next time here at the Listening Post. You fight so hard to win the presidency. You fight, fight, fight. And now only two years, that's a very short period. And by the time you start campaigning, it's a year. And now you got to go and fight again. But you just won. I'm fighting very hard for border security, so important. I've already started building the wall. We've built large sections and we're fixing up a lot of other sections that are a mess. The radical left can never control our borders. I will never let it happen. Because, you know, I kept trying to say, why is this? But it's, it's just there. This is national security we're talking about. We're not talking about games. But you ever see it, like in football, where a team is holding the other team scoreless. They can't throw, they can't pass, they can't do anything. Now it's three and a half quarters. They gotta just hold them. Uh, yeah, please. Thank you, Mr. President. Going back to the Russia investigation. And 